Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Well, thank you very much, Mark. It's, it's, a, it's an honor to be here um, with Ambassador Barsena and the other uh, speakers today for this very important, very important topic of Mexico. Um, country of nearly 128 million people. Um, it's a country with which we share a 2,000 mile border and much, much history and an interconnected future. Um, I can think of no country really that is more important for the future of our own country, especially in a world today that is breaking up into regions. I'll be talking about that a little more toward the end of my remarks. Um, our region, North America, will be increasingly important to our country uh, and to the future of, of both of our countries. A million people cross this border every day. Uh, it's an estimated 1.5 million Americans who actually live in Mexico today. 36 million uh, of our citizens are of Mexican origin. 25% of them are, are actually citizens. And um, as I say, this is a hateful um, relationship in the world of migrants. The human species is a migrating species. We are all migrants, all of us. And um, over the past 500 years, uh, the <coughs> settlement of the, what they call the New World from, uh, from Europe, a very important uh, aspect of this was a treaty in 1494, the Treaty of Tordesillas, in which uh, Spain and Portugal uh, divided up uh, their expansion. You can see here why Brazil uh, became Portuguese. Um, and as uh, the citizens of Europe flowed into the New World, Mexico had a very long head start on the United States. Um, Mexico City, for the past 500 years, most of the past 500 years, has been the largest city in the New World. It's an amazing city. So many of us go to Cancun and other places. Uh, Mexico City is one of the most culturally vibrant and interesting cities that I know of. Um, it's full of treasures. It's museums, um, amazing neighborhoods, cultural sites. Uh, one of my very favorites is near the Zocalo, the main square of Mexico City. It's the oldest printing press in the New World from 1524, when, uh, when our country was still kind of struggling to, to get our orientation. Uh, Mexico was far, far ahead. Um, from 1522, well, by the way, uh, as an example of the cultural vibrancy, I just wanted to slip this in, because I, the fact that the past five Best Directory Awards at the Academy Awards, four of them have gone to Mexican directors, uh, which I think is quite, quite something. Um, Alfonso Cuaron for Gravity in 2013, um, Alejandro Inyarito for Birdman, and then for The Revenant, and most recently Guillermo de Totoro for Shape of Water. So uh, this is just an example of the vibrancy uh, to our south, and it, which, which is a part of all of our lives. <coughs> but as I say, Mexico had a long head start uh, from 1522, 
you had the vice royalty of Mexico, and you can see um, it, this is a very extensive uh, empire at the time. In 1821, it became Mexico, it became an independent country in 1821. But uh, for centuries, this had been, these had been the boundaries of this, of this uh, empire in the New World. And of course, as the United States expanded, and with our manifest destiny theology, and with our uh, Monroe Doctrine, suzerainty, if you will, to our south, uh, we expanded in a war with Mexico uh, in 1846, leading to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Uh, we basically seized the half of the territory of this long-standing political entity. And of course, that has sort of set, set the tone um, our expansion across the vast of the Americas, um, you know, has its, has its moments like that. Um, when the Mexican Revolution broke out in 1910, which was a very fateful uh, turn in the Republic of Mexico, we, of course, intervened on several occasions. Um, when the dust settled, you had a political party, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI, which um, uh, settled in as the uh, as really the dominant party um, of Mexico, really up until the 1990s. Um, I think you could call this a centralized, presidential, corporatist, one-party system, by and large. Um, the PRI is still around, but its influence began to collapse in about 2000. Now, during the early part of the century, the relations between our two countries uh, were regulated. Um, two, two particularly important programs. Uh, the Bracero program during World War II when we did not have enough workers to, in, in the agricultural sector and uh, temporary workers were brought in uh, on a regulated basis to, um, to, to work in the United States. This program lasted until 1964. And, um, is really an adumbration of the kind of interaction we have uh, across the border today. The other program that I think is, is sort of points uh, to the future was the uh, Maquiladoras program. Industrial zones began to spring up in northern Mexico with U.S. capital investment. Um, by the 1980s, this was a very important part of the Mexican economy. In fact, they accounted for one half of all exports. Um, and to this day, this northern part of Mexico is more uh, developed, um, the rural southern parts are, are still uh, coming on. So these programs were uh, very important in the history between our two countries. Um, today, uh, the political landscape in Mexico is much more complex. Um, the PAN party, the National Action Party, founded in 1939, finally broke through in 2000, uh, breaking the grip of the pre Vincente Fox, elected in, in 2000 in the Felipe Calderon. In 2006, the PRI came back, but now, for the first time, there's another movement. Um, Pan was to the right of the PRI, uh, the Morena uh, Party, the National um, Regeneration Movement um, of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO, as he's called, um, won the most recent election. Uh, and uh, so this is a new, very new for Mexico, um, and for our relationship. A lot of people wonder how will this work out to have a movement that has not really been uh, in charge in Mexico suddenly come in. 
Um, and so we had the transition from the pre, from Enrique Peña Nieto to, uh, to AMLO. This is, uh, this is how the Trump administration welcomed this new, uh, this new president with his beloved daughter and with Mike Pence. Uh, Trump himself didn't, didn't go. But actually, there's an amazingly good rapport uh, between Trump and Lopez Obrador uh, since he was elected. Now, there are two issues among the many things going on between our countries that, that, that dominate right now, as we all know. One is immigration, and the other is trade. So I'll talk about each of those briefly. Um, the immigration uh, tensions we see now are not unique to this region. It's worldwide. This is how the Economist a year, year or two ago uh, sort of sketched it out. And many countries right now are trying to decide how open they are. Um, it's kind of becoming a dividing line in, in world politics. As you can see, the U.S. immigration has varied over the years. Uh, we slammed the door starting in the 1920s, in 1924, a very, very restrictive immigration act that had a national origins provision, basically saying we, are, we welcome North, Northwest Europeans. Uh, it's really what that, what that immigration legislation said. And it, it continued in force until the mid-60s when the new immigration law opened up part of the civil rights movement, if you will, opened us up to immigration. And you can see there's been tremendous uh, growth since then. Um, when we got to 14% foreign-born uh, earlier in, this, in the 20th century, the reaction said it were up to that level again. Many countries have far higher percentages of foreign-born than we do. There's no reason why this should be an issue. But we do see the tensions uh, around us. But here you can see the pattern of Hispanic Migration in the United States. Um, it's very interesting that some of the regions that have the highest um, proportion of Hispanics are those very regions that we seized from Mexico uh, in the mid 19th century. Um, we are slamming the door. I won't go into detail about President Trump's uh, various statements. Uh, you've, you've all read them, you know what's going on. Uh, but in concrete, Results are a slamming of the door, especially to refugees. Um, we've just announced that there'll be 18,000 refugees allowed in in the coming year. Uh, under the Trump administration, roughly half of the stated number have come in. So we're probably looking at nine or 10,000 total. Much of the immigration, of course, is coming off the Northern Triangle, from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, coming on what they call the beast, the train that crosses Mexico up to our border. And um, you've seen the scenes of, uh, of people being detained, families being separated. In a way, we're following the European playbook. After the big influx in 2015 in Europe, two things happened. Number one, the Europeans basically turned their eye away from the suffering of people trying to get across the Mediterranean. Boats sinking, people dying. It was a graphic demonstration to any immigrant, maybe you shouldn't make the trip. Right? And I think that's what these scenes are also doing. The, the intent is to dissuade people from coming. The other uh, thing that the Europeans did right away was to work with countries like Turkey, with third countries, to try to cooperate in keeping the immigrants um, in their country or sending them back. And of course, we're doing that now, probably with Mexico, um, also with, uh, with El Salvador and others. But in the midst of this, People lose sight of the fact that immigration from Mexico is actually declining. There's a surge coming out of the Northern Triangle, but, but if you look at the statistics, starting in 2010, 
immigration from Mexico stabilized and then began going down, especially after 2014. There's a, a, a net loss now of immigrants from Mexico, which I think is quite significant. In addition, the, the profile of many Mexicans coming up now has shifted. More college-educated uh, people are, are, are coming in. So uh, there are big shifts going on in, in, this, in this relationship. Um, one thing that does affect Mexicans in the U.S., of course, is the DREAM Act. This was proposed by George W. Bush. Um, he couldn't get it through Congress. It failed. Uh, Obama tried to, re to re revivify it. He took parts of it and called it DACA, D-A-C-A, the Deferred uh, Action for Children and Childhood Arrivals. The problem is he did this by executive order. There's no two-thirds majority in Congress for any of this, as George W. Bush also saw. We're a very divided country. And so uh, DACA is up in the air. Uh, in 2017, the Trump administration announced that they would stop the program. That's been held up in the courts. And on November 12th, the Supreme Court will take this up. And we'll see how this, uh, this DACA because there are hundreds of thousands of young, uh, young uh, people of foreign birth who are, who are caught up in this situation. And as I said, uh, the relationship with Lopez Obrador has been good, uh, actually, and uh, there's a lot of cooperation. Mexico is setting up a national guard and uh, deploying at the border. Trump mentioned this at the UN, uh, very complimenting Lopez Obrador. And on drug, the drug trade, there's been no major change uh, with the new administration in Mexico, still cooperation going on, still a big problem, obviously, for both countries. Now, in the midst of all this, the U.S. image in Mexico has taken a huge hit. Um, as you can see here, uh, just since 2015 or so, we're down about 30%. Uh, it's fallen further in Mexico than in any country in the world. Here's kind of how the rest of the world sees it. I find it interesting that, that the Russians, who were ecstatic about Trump, in 2017 have gone back down and look at that last, uh, uh, last uh, image there. Now, trade very briefly. Um, NAFTA started with uh, George H.W. Bush, signed by Clinton. Um, it led to uh, vast increases in trade. Here you can see each state's biggest import trading partner. Um, one of the key aspects is that a, a lot of the things coming in from Mexico and from Canada um, are intermediate goods. These are things that are, that are very important for the whole production cycle, supply chains and beyond. So look, up in our region, we're 60% uh, dependent on that kind of intermediate uh, imports from Canada. If you go down to Texas and Arizona, 40%. Our two economies are interlinked. There's no way around it. Um, and, um, uh, and in the next years, until recently, uh, China and Canada were our number one trading partners. For the first six months of this year, Mexico is. For the first time since 1811, this is really significant, and this, this is likely to continue um, as Mexico, and of course this is partly because of the tariffs on China. Now, I want to just briefly mention the prism in, the, in Washington right now is China, 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 China. You know, we're, we're urging all of our allies to toe the line, pull back from China. Um, President Trump said at the World Economic Forum last year, we will no longer accept state-run economies. And we're enforcing that with our allies. So when the new NAFTA was signed, it contained a provision, Article 3210, if you look at number four, uh, everybody, every party, party into a free trade agreement with a non-market economy shall allow the other parties to terminate the agreement. So you have to notify them in six months. 
Um, now, this is not being forced yet. I mean, I can't believe that Canada and Mexico have really traded away there because um, this is supposed to be not a trade with this kind of provision. But it's an example of how we are trying now to push China back. We, uh, we declared in our national security strategy that it was a mistake to bring them into the economy. Uh, in the first place, uh, the chief technology officer, Michael Kratzios, gave a speech earlier this month, which he said, China is moving ahead in AI and in quantum. And uh, th this is the challenge. This is the core of what's happening in China. It's not so much trade, it's tech. Because uh, these have national security implications. So we're pushing Huawei out. We're asking companies like Mexico not to go with Huawei. China has these enormous infrastructure programs going around the world. Um, we feel challenged by this. Uh, China is developing its region. The European Union is developing its region with infrastructure. We are not. Neither at home nor in our own region are we doing what the rest of the world is doing. And in fact, um, you know, George W. Bush's first visit uh, as president was to Mexico. Uh, president Obama's first visit was to Canada. Trump's first visit was to Saudi Arabia. And, you know, we are still investing our blood and our treasure um, in that part of the world. Um, it's estimated this may end up costing us about $3 trillion, $6 trillion, rather. And we're still in Afghanistan, a lonely mission. The U.S. Army issued its official history of the Iraq War earlier this year, two volumes in the works for years, and concluded that the only victor from the Iraq War was Iran. Now, if that doesn't tell us something about our priorities in the recent times, we, we have to rethink, especially since the rest of the world is heading in this more regionalized direction. We've got to focus on our own region. Um, and I would think that, that we would have enough information at our disposal now. Um, and actually, we're pushing in this direction by trying to push China out of the supply chains. We're de facto setting the stage for a greater focus on our region, which I think will be a most welcome development and will be, um, will be worthy of the history, the rich history that exists between our two countries. But thank you very much.